Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're off on our virtual travels, finding out about the highs and the lows of fieldwork. From chasing butterflies up mountains to artificially inseminating kakapos with the help of drones and putting angry birds in a paper bag until they poo, we talk to the researchers studying genetics and evolution in action. Every year, the Genetic Society runs the Heredity Fieldwork Grant Scheme, awarding up to £1,500 to cover travel and accommodation costs for researchers wanting to carry out a fieldwork project in genetics. Our stay-at-home roving reporter Georgia Mills caught up with four intrepid explorers who've been off on their travels in locations as exotic as New Zealand, Lanzarote and the Lake District to hear more about their research and what they learned out in the field. Melissa Minter, a PhD student at the University of York, is studying how the UK's most secretive butterfly species, the mountain ringlet, is coping with climate change and whether there's any hope that they might be saved. The mountain ringlet is the UK's only montane butterfly and, as the name suggests, they live right at the top of mountains, so there aren't many more places for them to go as the climate warms. If there's enough genetic diversity in the butterfly populations that remain, they might be able to adapt and survive in the future. But before Melissa could answer that question, she first had to find them. It was time to put on her hiking boots and go on a butterfly hunt. I did some really excellent fieldwork where I went and found this butterfly all over the UK. Uh, which means I actually went to some of the most beautiful places in the country. So this butterfly only occurs in the Lake District in England and in the Scottish Highlands. So between the Cairngorms and Loch Lomond National Park, there's a belt of mountains there, which is where they occur. So my fieldwork was basically me climbing up a mountain and sampling uh, this butterfly so that I can do some genetic testing on it. So it was tiring but really fantastic field work. Wow so how, how did your calves compare at the beginning and at the end of all this mountain climbing? <laughs> I think I weighed myself before and afterwards and I had lost I think I lost a stone over my field work season. <laughs> wow oh my goodness so how did you catch the butterflies? You'd spend maybe between kind of an hour or three hours climbing. And then when you start to come into the area where you know they are, you know, you start getting excited. And then you see this brown, very small butterfly fly in the distance. And you just absolutely leg it uh, with your net. (laughs) That's basically (laughs) it. So uh, a lot of sprinting and trying not to fall over. <laughs> Was it is the butterfly net like the net I'm imagining the sort of stick with a hoop on the end? Oh yes, definitely. And how how common were these butterflies? How long did it take to spot them and then chase them down in an, in an average day? Once you are in the area where there are mountain ringlets, there are loads of them. It's actually amazing because I've never seen so many of one species of butterfly because normally, you know, you go in your garden and you see maybe one small tortoiseshell or you go to the woods and you might see a few speckled woods. But to see the amount that I saw in these areas was amazing. So you'd get into the area and you'd start seeing them flying around and they would be everywhere. So most of the time it didn't take me longer than an hour to collect 
the mails that I needed to collect and that would be a struggle an hour most of the time it was in 20 minutes and after that I would sit and have my lunch and watch more and more mountain ringlets just flying around there was just so many of them so have you have you managed to do any of the genetic analysis yet I've done some mitochondrial DNA sequencing of um, some of the UK populations along with European populations, which um, I managed to get hold of, which, you know, to try and see whether the UK was unique in terms of the kind of genetic diversity we have here in comparison to Europe, which it does. The Lake District has really high genetic diversity in comparison to Europe, and you can kind of see that Scotland and the Lake District don't really share that much genetic information, which suggests that potentially they came from different areas of Europe or they kind of colonised the UK separately after the last Ice Age, which is really interesting because you'd think that because they were both in the UK that they came from the same area and kind of just split off after the last glacial, but it looks as though that might not be the case. Okay, so so is it good news or bad news for the butterflies uh, for climate change? Well, because there is so much genetic diversity in the mountain ringlet across across all of Europe, because they've been separated into these distinct mountain regions, it is more likely that they may be able to lose genetic diversity. So if the populations suffer under future climate change, it means that we'll also lose genetic diversity in the mountain ringlet which is really important because, as we've discussed before, these genetic diversity is really important for them to be able to adapt to not only climate change, but kind of any other environmental threats. Right. So it's bad news either way, really, but we're possibly not going to see them completely gone, at least. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. That's Melissa Minter from the University of York. Ewan Stenhouse is a PhD student at Cardiff University and he's got his eye on a different elusive UK species, hawfinches. He's finding out whether differences in diet between UK and European hawfinch populations might be responsible for their decline in the British Isles, putting them on the red list for threatened species here, while their continental cousins in Europe are thriving. Rather than trudging up mountains or through muddy fields, his fieldwork experience was rather more cushy. But to start with, for those of us who've never even seen a hawfinch, what are they like? So hawfinch is the biggest species of finch in the UK. They're found in North Wales, the New Forest and like the border, so like the White Valley and the Forest of Dean. They look pretty evil. I think the best way to describe <laughs> them would be you know the the uh, like the red birds out of Angry Birds. Yeah. Yeah, they look a little bit. They've got this kind of evil glint in the eye. Um, <laughs> they're, but they're, I mean, yeah, they're amazing. They're they're really cool looking birds. They've got like massive bills, and their name in Greek or the Latin name, which is Cocothraustes, Cocothraustes, actually means um, the one that can break the kernel. So they can crack like cherry stones and olive stones. Like they're yeah, they're pretty powerful. Do you know what? I'm I'm just looking up photos of them online at the moment. You're absolutely right. They do they do have like angry eyebrows, don't they? They look like they can yeah, yeah, gonna go over your eyes. They look absolutely furious. Yeah. But saying that, we still want to save them. So <laughs> tell me about your fieldwork. Yeah, how yeah. how did that come into it? Okay, so um, my European fieldwork basically involved me initially sending off loads and loads of emails to different bird ringers in continental Europe to say what my project was about, like what I was doing, and if they could help me. 
So a few people from Denmark got in contact with me initially and said, yeah, we ring Hawfinches uh, in the woods by my house or in my back garden. You're more than welcome to come out and do some field work here. And it was the same in Germany as well. And it was really interesting because when I initially went out there, I didn't know what to expect at all. And I thought it was going to be very much like ringing was here in the UK, which is you getting up at four in the morning, you're sitting in a freezing cold car or even worse, like standing in the middle of the woods, just kind of waiting. But because these birds visit back gardens really regularly in continental Europe, which they don't hear, our oh, field work was great. It didn't really feel like field work, to be honest, Georgia. It was me kind of sat in a nice warm house, in, especially in Denmark, uh, getting fed the breakfast or the cups of tea that I could handle. And we just kind of sat and waited for them to, to go into the nets in the back garden. And then once they were there, we just went out, extracted them. We take biometric data. And then the kind of really strange bit is I put it into a, uh, a brown paper bag and then I wait for it to do a poo. <laughs> so it's yes it's yeah it's really glamorous it was basically from that fecal sample that i do all of my um genetic work with okay so how how are the genetics of the poo coming into things the best way to describe it would be basically this this poo is my entire phd really and that's a sentence i never thought i would say because <laughs> You want to look at the diet of an animal, but you want to do it non-invasively. Collecting faecal samples is a really good way of doing that because we don't have to harm the birds. So faecal sample collection is a really good non-invasive way of collecting dietary information because obviously what the bird's been eating recently will be passed out in its poo. Brilliant. And so what kind of things did you find in the poo? What, what have they been eating? I'm currently working through the main analysis of my results. What we've found so far is that the number of different things, so the number of dietary items that we found in Europe is a lot higher than in the UK. The most common thing we found was sunflower seeds, but that's because in order to bait the site to get hornfinches to come down from the trees, because they're notoriously shy and secretive, you basically have to give them an all-you-can-eat sunflower seed buffet for weeks and weeks and weeks before you even put up any traps. We also got I mean, beach was there, so European beach, hornbeam. And then when I did the same analysis for invertebrates, it was just a lot of caterpillars, which makes sense because they're kind of big and squishy and full of nutrients and water. So it's been interesting to look at the diet and to compare the UK and European populations because there's a definite difference. Oh, right. So does this give us any clues as to how to um, bring back the hawfinch to Britain? Um, hopefully. So what we can do is working in conjunction with the RSPB, who are my uh, case partners, we can look at the diet and say, okay, so there's a really high frequency of occurrence of, say, like beech or hornbeam or this certain type of tree species or this species of invertebrate. Once we've got this detailed knowledge of the diet, we can start planting certain trees that will hopefully encourage them back. When you were sequencing the DNA, I know these sometimes they can crop up with quite surprising things. Did you find anything like very weird they'd been eating? Oh uh, yeah, a few things. So once you got rid of kind of the obvious human contamination, like, I don't know, raisins, the, the most interesting thing I found was quite a lot of birds have been eating cashews. Oh. Yeah. Now, as far as I'm aware, there aren't a lovely plantation of cashew trees growing in the middle of like the forest of Dean or Snowdonia 
So I think it shows that actually they're visiting garden feeders slightly more often than people think because people do make their own bird seed and people put all sorts out for garden birds. And it's been, um, it's almost like I'm getting a sneak peek into people's back gardens through the diet work. So it's quite interesting. But yeah, I think cashew was probably the strangest one. Yeah, I got some uh, lemons and satsumas as well, oddly enough. And we mentioned earlier they got kind of, they got a mean look about them in this incredibly powerful beak. How was it working so closely with them and sort of having to handle them? Were they, uh, were they... No, it was painful. Good partners? Oh, painful. <laughs> yeah, it was painful. Um, because when you, you handle a bird, it's called like the ringer's grip. So you basically get its head in between your two index fingers. And in a cloth bag, you can normally feel where the bird's head is. So you can be really careful and gentle and kind of work your way around without getting your fingers bitten off. But because I'm putting in them, them in these paper bags, it's thicker. So you can't really feel where the bird's head is beforehand. So what you've basically got to do is just shove your hand in and then have like a little feel around. But obviously all the time, you can't see the bird's head. So you don't know where this beak is. And I actually showed my lab a video of me trying to extract a hawfinch out of the bag. And I didn't realise quite how much swearing was in it. Because <laughs> once it clamps onto your finger, like it hurts. <laughs> it's, it, and it leaves a lovely little diamond shaped scar like it's, it's there for a good few hours. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Because, um, really, I mean, they're powerful birds. And, yeah, if it bites you, especially on the knuckles, like you, you know about mm. it. And they've got incredibly flexible necks, I found. So I'd be holding one quite happily. And then I'd look away for a second. And it would just somehow turn its head nearly... <laughs> just full-on exorcist you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Nearly 360 <laughs> degrees and just clamp onto my knuckle. And then I'd look back. <laughs> <laughs> you still got all your fingers? Yeah, just about, just about. <laughs> Ewan Stenhouse from Cardiff University. Claudia Martin, who's doing her PhD at the University of East Anglia, ended up in a slightly more glamorous location for her field trip, the Canary Islands off the coast of West Africa. But she wasn't studying the eponymous canaries. Instead, she had her sights set on a different bird. I study a species called the Berthelot's pipit, which most people haven't heard of, but it's a sort of small brown bird. But it diverged from uh, mainland Africa two million years ago and spread across the Canary Islands and several other archipelagos, including Madeira and the Savagins. I'm interested in how these populations have diverged across these islands and how different uh, habitats and selection pressures have driven their evolution across these islands. Cool. So is this another kind of similar thing to Darwin's finches? Yeah, pretty similar. So um, quite interestingly, we can see differences in bill morphology across the different populations. And so just like Darwin's finches, we're kind of interested to see how different ecological pressures have driven this change in, in physical appearance that we see and why that might be advantageous for some individuals. I'm specifically interested in trying to identify signatures of selection. So Across the genome, we can find regions of the genome that are, give us indications of selection in that region. We can identify what that region does by looking at the genes. And so previously, we found that some of these regions are quite closely related to disease. And across my pipits in the different islands, there's quite a variation in the levels and presence of disease. And so we we're interested in following this up further. For this particular bit of fieldwork, we decided to travel to Lanzarote, which is an island that quite a few people will be familiar with. 
And here on this island, we actually find a really high presence of disease in populations that we'd measured a small number of individuals in previous years. So we wanted to follow this up further and see if we could actually identify not only across the populations, but also within a particular population, if we were able to get a better idea about what's going on at specific loci that we're interested in, in relation to disease in this population. Take me through when you first arrived. How was it? Was it exciting, scary? I guess when you first arrive, you've got the whole island to explore and you think, okay, where where are we going to collect these birds first? And because they're just, you know, fairly nondescript small brown birds, you think, well, how am I actually going to be able to find that bird hopping around compared to any other bird? But we quickly learnt that the pipits have a very specific preference for habitat. So they quite like uh, low sort of scrub land, but also all the way through to kind of desert where you wouldn't expect there to be much there, but they need just the right amount of habitat. And it's quite hard to catch pipits in some of these habitats. So we learnt, for example, that there are some small shrubs in Lanzarote that have small yellow flowers. They provide a lot of insects for the birds. And so actually when we try and catch the pipits in these small areas, it's almost impossible to entice them into our traps. So I guess I should probably talk about how we try and catch them. We use uh, something called clap traps. As the name suggests, they are pinned open with a baited pin, um, which has a little worm on the end. And so we're relying on the birds being excited by the presence of this worm. And they hopefully come and tug the worm and um, that closes the trap on them. And we quickly go and fetch them and, um, and release them safely shortly afterwards. But in these areas where food's very prevalent, they're not interested in the worms. So it makes it quite hard to catch them. And how did you get the genetic sample from the birds? We take a small blood sample from each of the birds, absolutely tiny sample, but enough for us to extract the DNA. And we also monitor disease in the islands. So as I said, we're quite interested in Lanzarote because it's got high prevalence of disease. So these species are exposed to both avian malaria and also an avian pox, which is a viral pathogen that uh, sort of causes massive uh, lesions on the bird's feet and also sometimes their beaks. So we're taking samples of those as well, which we can later sequence, and that'll tell us more about evolution of individuals that do or don't have the diseases. And so um, have you managed to get into any of the data yet? Do you have any idea what is going on with these populations? Yeah, it looks quite exciting. So we can identify that the malarial strains um, on Lanzarote are very closely related to those on mainland Africa that we find in the sister species of the pipit and the tawny pipit. While that's not that surprising, it's quite exciting to see that maybe there hasn't been that much evolution of the, the viral strain recently. And also we found a, an exceptionally high prevalence of malaria in the populations. So Actually, 70% of our birds had malaria, which to me was surprisingly high. And so this probably will be driving evolution in that island quite strongly and providing quite a strong selection pressure on the birds. What was this work like? How did it compare to the, the rest of your PhD? I find it really exciting because it allows you to, I guess, take the work back to its bare bones. Going and seeing the the environments and the variation that we can see in the genetic data, actually being able to see it on the ground, both in terms of variation in the ecology of the islands, but also variation in the individuals of the birds, is really exciting. 
One day we had a particularly poor day. I'm not quite sure exactly why, but we kept catching lizards in our trap. <laughs> um, so instead of catching birds, the lizards were quite enticed by the worm. And so sometimes if we put the traps too close to a pile of rocks, a little lizard would climb out and, uh, and uh, get the worm instead of the bird, <laughs> which gave us quite a disappointment when from far away you can see the trap's gone. You run up to the trap and what you've got in there is, um, is a small lizard, which looks rather startled. And um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will think it sounds like basically the best thing ever, getting to go to Lanzarote and look at birds all the time. So can you give us a reality check? Was it all sunshine and easy and what were the harder moments? I mean, whilst I do really, really enjoy it, it is exceptionally repetitive. So every day you get up, you may or may not catch many birds. So some days we caught one probably from being out in the field for 10 hours or so. So it's a bit hard to keep your morale up when you've uh, been to four locations and caught no birds and sometimes not even seen any. I do generally really enjoy it, but I did seem to be pooed on quite a lot, I must admit. <laughs> and I must say, uh, sort of cleaning... So we, we repetitively use the same kit, so we have to wash it quite well every night so as not to have so much waste. But yes, cleaning pooey trays at 11.30 at night after dinner is... Yeah, I think most people wouldn't <laughs> enjoy that part. But uh, no, I shouldn't complain. It's, uh, we had a fantastic time. The highs and the lows of genetics fieldwork. That's Claudia Martin from the University of East Anglia. Our last intrepid genetic explorer is Lara Urban, who's now a conservation researcher at the University of Otago in New Zealand and previously did her PhD at the University of Cambridge. She used her heredity fieldwork grant to go in search of some of New Zealand's most iconic birds, kakapos and takahays. While kakapos have a place in science history as the only species to have had all its living members genetically sequenced, that's not the only thing that's appealing about these flightless birds. They both look quite funny, actually. The takahe being often called like a fat blue chicken. Uh, so <laughs> as you already hear, it might not be so interesting, whereas I actually think its colour is absolutely beautiful, like the blue ir irresonant colour. But... I think what might be more interesting for people is the kakapo, though, because it's like a quiet, large green parrot. It's also quite fat, <laughs> at least during breeding season, they gain quite some weight. Yeah, so you can really imagine it as a large green parrot, also really beautiful green color. And they have very large claws and beaks so that they can climb with them because now that they can't fly anymore, they actually became quite good climbers. Or so sometimes they also just fall off the tree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would definitely recommend everyone to look them up online. They are very endearing creatures. <laughs> So actually one kakapo who is called Sirocco, some time ago when Stephen Fry and Mark Wardin visited the kakapo for a documentation, one very famous kakapo, Sirocco, started climbing onto Mark Wardin's shoulders and tried to copulate with his head. So <laughs> he was a little bit too curious in that case, I guess. And that's also, I think, how the kakapo became famous worldwide. But it's really true that some of them are really interested in humans and they just don't know that we could pose any danger for them. And they follow you around or if you actually wake them up, they will complain by making like a very weird sound which is called the booming sound so they don't really care about that we humans might do something bad to them you know they they don't really know what is a good thing i guess 
Tell me about your your field work. What were you specifically trying to do and what did a normal day look like? Yeah, so last year when I came here, I had the chance to go to Venuaho, which is one of the three or four islands, let's say, where the Kakapo still live nowadays. I mainly came here to do computational work on the genomics of the Kakapo, but I was very lucky to be allowed to go to Venuaho for a few weeks to do some field work there. So Venuaho is in the south of New Zealand, so quite close to the Antarctic already. So it's really far out there in the wild. Why I went there was like mainly to get to know the Kakapo conservation project. So when I was actually there on the island, what I mainly did was um, to help out with supplementary feeding and other like technical work, mainly helping out because I went during a very, very busy breeding season. So um, last year was the most successful breeding season of the whole Kakapo conservation project. So there were a lot of chicks to take care of. So I mainly helped out, as said. However, I also got to talk a lot to the rangers and talk about the problems that exist within the Kakapo species. So with respect to inbreeding, for example. So we see that a lot of the eggs that the Kakapo lay are infertile. So that's about half of the eggs that are being laid just are not fertile at all. These were like very interesting insights where I can then look from the genomic perspective and try to figure out what's going on. I also help with some artificial insemination, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that later on. But as I said, mostly it was just walking across the island. <laughs> um, tell me more about holding the little kakapos to do health checks and the artificial insemination. What, what did that look like? It sounds a bit chaotic. <laughs> yeah, so holding them was, was actually already a bit chaotic, maybe, because you have to be really careful of their strong beaks and claws. So the ranger showed me a very specific way of how to hold them, also not to hurt them, but to hold them in a firm way. So because if they go loose, they might be able to hurt you quite strongly. So in my case, once a claw got loose a little bit and I got a little bit of a wound um, and I still have it, but I'm really happy about it, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, so while holding them, the rangers who are much more experienced than me in that would do like health checks on them and would check their eyes and everything and their feathers, which is all representative of their overall fitness. And with respect to the artificial insemination, we had some experts on artificial insemination on the island during the time that I was there. And they tried a new approach, basically, to get semen from the male birds. And I guess you can best describe it as being like a quite small vibrator <laughs> um, <laughs> that they would hold to the cloaki of the kakapo. And would then get some sperm, um, not a lot most of the time, but a little <laughs> bit of sperm uh, that we could then use to like in a very targeted way fertilize another female. So if we, for example, knew a certain male and a certain female weren't related at all with each other, but they had territories that were really far away from each other on the island, so they wouldn't ever meet naturally, we could then fly the sperm of the male over to the female. I, I'm, I'm saying flying over because... The 
this is actually how we did it. We used drones to fly the sperm <laughs> from one uh, point of the island to the other. So if we were lucky enough and the male and the female were close to each other, it was possible to just directly bring the sperm there and fertilize the female. But as sperm <laughs> quality can deteriorate quite quickly, if we were like on two other sides of the island, whereas the island is not large, but it's so hilly, it would take a lot of time uh, to walk there. So yeah, the Takahe recovery team and I think especially Andrew Digby, um, the leading scientist, had the idea of just using drones. And I think that's one of the examples where you see how like innovative the Kagapo conservation team has been in the protection. You know, they're using all sorts of technology. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've heard of drones being useful for science, but for carrying sperm, not what I'd heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was the first time that I did that too, yeah. <laughs> Georgia Mills talking to Lara Urban about her work to conserve New Zealand's iconic flightless birds. There's a link to an online lecture about these fascinating creatures on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And in case you are insatiably curious about how a kakapo might try to copulate with someone's head, I've put a link to the YouTube video on there too, entitled Shagged by a Rare Parrot. Don't say I didn't warn you. If you're a genetics researcher and you'd like to apply for a Heredity Fieldwork grant, head over to the Genetics Society's website, that's genetics.org.uk, and take a look at the grants section. Or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And finally, it's time for a quick look at what's in the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity. That's the Journal of the Genetics Society. Chimpanzees are our closest cousins, but they're at risk of disappearing from the wild thanks to poaching for bushmeat and the illegal wildlife trade. James Bergen's been talking to Peter Franson from the University of Copenhagen and Claudia Fonsera from the Barcelona Biomedical Research Park, who've been developing new genetic tools to aid in the conservation of this iconic species. The chimpanzee as a species now live in the tropical regions of equatorial Africa. The species consists of Four different subspecies, where you have the three uh, to each other neighboring subspecies in the most central part, they are all endangered, uh, while the more isolated western chimpanzee is uh, now listed as a critical uh, endangered species. Um, most of the threats are, I mean, they all have a, a human component to it, like deforestation, transmissions of diseases, and hunting for, for bushmeat, and the illegal wildlife trade has, has really sparked in the in the recent years. Mm. No, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure many people would really consider the bushmeat angle. Yeah, and I think disease are also a major threat for chimpanzees since they are our closest relatives. They can also get infected by infectious disease that we as humans get, such as Ebola. And recently uh, there has been some uh, people talking, starting to talk about uh, how these SARS can also uh, infect these species. So I wonder how you think your study might help in, say, chimp conservation efforts and the fight against their exploitation. I mean, there's about a thousand individuals of chimpanzees sitting in sanctuaries across Africa at the moment. So if we get a hair sample from either of, of these sanctuaries, we can pinpoint where that exact animal was captured. When we can collaborate all that data together, uh, we get some really good insights to some of the main harvesting grounds for, for the illegal trade. And of course, it can also be used for 
the relocation or if you want to reintroduce the captured individuals to the wild, uh, you can actually find the exact region that it originally came from. And lastly, if you have that information of where it was captured and then also where it was confiscated, you can start putting lines between these points and perhaps get a, a idea about some of the trafficking routes and, and hopefully in the, in the future uh, break those routes. Mm, that would be the dream. <laughs> yeah, that would be the dream. You can find their full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Thanks very much to our stay-at-home roving reporter, Georgia Mills. Next time, we'll be exploring some more stories from the history of genetics. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people to discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews. And production is by the brilliant Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.